What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're only going to read a few verses this morning. We've got verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 on our desk this morning to work through. But as we come now to the reading of God's Word, let's go ahead and stand up together as the body of Christ as we recognize that God's Word is holy, it is infallible, it is inspired, it is inerrant, the very Word of the only true and living God. Listen now as the people of God to the Word of God. For we came, we never came, Paul says, Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. So fundamentally, Christianity works on two axes. We might think of a cross, actually, if this helps, a visual that there is, first of all, the individual's relationship with God, and that's indispensable. It's utterly fundamental to what Christianity is. Christianity is essentially a relationship between redeemed sinners and the true and living God. And this relationship that we have, is, we might conceive of it as being vertically aligned, where God comes to us in grace. God has chosen us in eternity past. He's called us in time. He's redeemed us through Christ and the gospel. His spirit has come to, to live and to dwell in us and with us as individual believers. And so there's nothing more basic in Christianity than the individual relationship between us and God, right? So that's the vertical axis that we're, we're going to talk about today. But there's also a horizontal axis that likewise is indispensable for real, true, biblical Christianity. We can't ignore that, the horizontal. And so that's why as a church, we call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we call ourselves gospel fellowship. The gospel is the vertical work of God. The fellowship is the horizontal relationship that we have between others, one another. We have the Lord's table together, which we call communion. So there's this unity of the church gathering together that we experience. And here's the thing is that neither of these two axes or uh, these, these, these fundamental constructs of the faith 
can we dispense with? You can't get rid of either one. So for instance, if you try to get rid of the vertical, then you have something like a secular Christianity, which is obviously an oxymoron. There is no such thing as secular Christianity, though I guarantee you many have tried. Just look at some of the old, old seminaries from this nation's history. Look at what's going on at Yale and uh, Harvard and Duke. They're essentially trying to make some sort of a secularized Christianity, which is nothing other than politics that's dressed up in the garb of religious speech. And you can cloak humanism with whatever robes and stoles and bells and lights and whatever else you want to put on humanism. But if you don't have that vertical relationship with God and the gospel, that's all you have is humanism, a secular and empty worldview. And yet at the same time, the horizontal axis is also indispensable. It's absolutely crucial for us to have relationships with other people, as we're going to see here in just a moment. Because if you try to dispense with the horizontal axis, then what do you have? All you have is mysticism. You have an individual's relationship with God with no accountability. You have no service. You have no outlet for love and no way to experience joy, fellowship, camaraderie, true friendship. And so both of these axes, the vertical and the horizontal, are fundamental to the faith as we're going to see here in just a moment. And I promise you I'm going to get to the main text here just momentarily. But before we do, let's go a side route, if you will. Let's go down a side street and go with me to Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus himself teaches this very principle that I'm laying out as the foundation for us this morning of the vertical and the horizontal axis. Now, of course, in Matthew 22, this is a famous text. One of the scribes comes up to Jesus in 22.35, a lawyer even. He says, I'm going to ask you a question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, look at verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, okay, with all of your soul. We're going to talk about that word soul here in just a moment. With all of your mind. In other words, Jesus says the fundamental reality is the vertical. You got nothing without the vertical. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, Jesus answering the question offers to him the second most important commandment in the law as well. In verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love. Same verb. Same thing that we offer to God in our worship. Love. Now, he's saying we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, we obviously don't worship our neighbor, but we're to love them really and truly and from the heart, from the deepest level. And then Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you see what Jesus just did there is he set up this construct that if you want to follow after Christ, if you want to experience real biblical Christianity, then neither the vertical axis nor the horizontal axis can be diminished or eliminated in any possible way. Try to do that. Again, you have secularism on one hand or mere mysticism on the other. Neither of those measure up to real Christianity. And you say, well, why? Where? So let's go to the main text. What are you doing, Pastor Matt? I thought we were in 1 Thessalonians 2. We are in 1 Thessalonians 2. I just needed to lay a little bit of, of conceptual framework for us because Paul says something here in verse 8 in our main text. And you can go back now to 1 Thessalonians 2 if you'd like that is exactly illustrative of Jesus' main point in Matthew 22. Look at the vertical and the horizontal axis listed explicitly in the text in verse 8. So he says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you 
not only the gospel of God, we want to preach to you that vertical axis that sinners can be saved by the work of Christ and his spirit, but also, look at the horizontal here, our own selves because you had become very dear to us, Paul says to the Thessalonians. So there it is, the vertical and the horizontal. And as we dig into verse 8 here as a starting point, as much as I love the ESV, which I'm preaching from today and you probably have in your, your pew Bible, love the ESV. Mwah, great translation, right? I don't often quibble with it because it's excellent most of the time, but in this rare instance, I really wish we had the old King James on our laps because instead of phrasing this Greek word here, our own selves, you see that in the middle of verse 8? Not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. You might want to circle the word selves here. Uh, that Greek word there is actually the word which means souls. And so Paul says, we don't just share the gospel, we share our souls with each other. Our souls. And so the King James, I think, has it right here. It says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, because you were so very dear to us. If you have the New King James or the NASB, you have the word lives there. But either way, I think it's stronger than just sharing ourselves. Sharing ourselves. We're sharing ourselves. No, Paul says we're sharing our souls with you. That's what he's up to in verse 8. The same word souls that we just got out of Matthew 22 when Jesus said we are to love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul. There it is, right? There's our word. And with all your mind. Now in the Greek, it's the word suke, from which we get the word psychology and many other English words that are similar to psychology, psychiatrics, other things like that. We think mostly of the mind here, but the Greek word soul is so much deeper. It's so much richer. It means the life. It means the, the very spirit within us. It means the consciousness or even the immaterial being of who we are on the very inside. And sometimes soul and spirit are even used interchangeably to describe this life within us. And that's what Paul is saying, that we share with each other in Christ, not just a little time. We don't just share the table. We don't just share a pew. We're sharing what? Our souls with each other. And so this text here that we have before us is so important because these four verses, 5, 6, 7, and 8 in 1 Thessalonians 2 are something like Check this out. A basic primer in Christian relationships. That's what this is. It's a basic primer in Christian relationships. And with all of that by way of introduction, let me this morning point out three things that Paul says are fundamental to our relationships with other people as believers in Christ. I'm going to mention three. We could probably extrapolate more than that. But I'm going to focus on these three things from 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 to 8. So let's call this number one. This will be the main point, number one, if you're taking notes on your outline or writing notes in your margins or whatever you do to keep up with the sermon. Number one, people are not objects to manipulate. Let that sink in. People are not objects to manipulate. Now I'm drawing this from verse 5 because Paul says here, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, 
nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. He calls down the witness of God. He says, we didn't do that to you, Thessalonians. We weren't there to flatter you. We weren't there to manipulate you. People are not objects like putty in your hands to, to turn and to twist and to make and to mold into what you want them to be. People are not objects to be manipulated. And Paul uses the word here, flattery. Now, let me just say this about flattery. Some people are very good at art. There are probably some people here this morning that are very good sketch artists or painters or photographers or poets, right? And when you're an artist, uh, you take the medium in your hands and you use it to make what you want to be out of that thing, whether it's paint or putty or sculpture or plaster, you're creating something with your hands so that it forms what you're making with your mind's eye. And some people are naturally good at art and some people have to practice really hard to be good at art. But some people, their artwork is manipulating others. And maybe they're just naturally good at it, or maybe they've trained expertly to become master manipulators. But that's exactly what flattery is. Flattery is the art of shaping people to do what you want them to do with your words. Now, flattery, listen, this is not good. I'm not talking about inspiring people. That's a different thing. That is good. I'm not talking about motivating people. That too is good. But flattery, uh, when people get good at it, they can be very good at it, but it is always destructive because it's always using the other person as though they're just pieces on the chessboard for you to play with, to try to work it out so the game ends up like you want it to end. And I'm not saying it's you individually, but I'm saying that there are some people that that is the art and the craft and the science that they have trained at for years and they're very good at it. And there's a lot of ways, aren't there, that you can get people to do what you want them to do. Uh, violence is one. Violence is a form of people or human manipulation using physical brute strength. Uh, there's implied violence, which is another mechanism of maneuvering people on the chessboard. We call that intimidation. There are other ways to move people through the courts or through lawsuits or through shaming techniques. Even rioting and looting is a form of trying to contort uh, people's, people's worldviews, people's thoughts, people's goals and aspirations to turn them in the way that they want them to go. But here's the difference about flattery, and this is why it's so dangerous, right? Because every one of those other things, whether it's looting or violence or intimidation or whatever, those all are so overt and obvious that when you see them, it literally causes your adrenal glands to explode so you can feel it in your fingertips, right? You can feel it when somebody's physically intimidating you. You get that fight or flight situation that happens in your brain and all of a sudden you either want to run or do fists. But, but here's the thing about flattery. Listen to this. Flattery is so destructive because it does exactly the same thing, but it doesn't trigger that fight or flight mechanism. Instead, what it does is it gives the brain that little dopamine hit that says, I'm appreciated. I'm loved. I'm thanked. I'm good enough. 
And the real master flatterer, the master manipulator, takes that and then steers the person exactly as he wants them to go. That's why it's so dangerous. Paul says, verse 5, We never came with words of flattery, as you know. God is my witness. Listen to a few texts on flattery from the scriptures. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So there's no love there. Flattery uses all kinds of terms of endearments, compliments, other things like this, gratuitous words. But what is it doing? It's actually working ruin, says Proverbs 26. Here's another one. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Now, I have a small group. We're working through Pilgrim's Progress. There's a whole chapter on the flatterer. We just studied it, right? And what happens to Christian and faithful is that they end up falling into the net. And the Redeemer has to come and cut them out of the net. You may remember that illustration from Bunyan's great book. Here's another one. A, a Psalm 12. Psalm 12, too. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. You get that? A double heart. So they're showing you this one. They're showing you the heart of affection and admiration with their words. But what's going on is they're concealing their selfish, self-aggrandizing, egomaniac heart that's actually trying to manipulate you to bring them exactly what they want to be brought. And some of us get very good at that skill. And we should repent. And so let me just ask you, I'm not accusing you, I'm just asking you, do you use flattery? Have you become a master painter in words so as you can turn people with your words? Do you have a father-in-law, for instance, that you only show any affection or time to when your faucet is leaky and you need Mr. Fix-It to come over and do it for you? It's flattery. If you only care about him for what he does for you, that's flattery. Do you have a colleague that you only take out for lunch when you need her to do a project that you don't want to do? Do you have anybody like that? Do you have a friend that you only even keep on your Rolodex so that you can hunt on his property or borrow his truck when you need it? That's flattery. And see, unfortunately, some of us get very good at keeping these relationships in our lives so that we can use them for our own devices and purposes. And Paul says here, Christian fellowship, we don't do that. We would never do that. God is witness, he says. Okay? Second main point on our primer of human relationships here within the body of Christ. Number two, people are not a means to your significance. Okay? People are not a means to your significance. Now look at this in verse six. I'm not making these up this morning. We're just drawing these right out of the text. That's all we're doing here. We're just taking what Paul says and we're, we're pinning them to main points and main ideas here so we can see this in light of what Paul is saying about his relationship with the Thessalonians. But he's saying here that people are not a means to significance. Look at verse 6. For we did not, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Okay, We'll come to that latter phrase could have made demands as apostles from Christ in just a few moments. But notice in verse 6, what's the problem here? The, the problem is the seeking of glory from other people. Now, two weeks ago, I didn't preach last week, I was out of town. 
Two weeks ago, I, I just taught something very similar to this from verse 4. Let's roll back to verse 4 and let's remind ourselves what we learned two weeks ago. Paul said there, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Same principle. Same principle here. And I said this last time, and I'll say it again again because it preaches, to be honest. If you live your life to please other people, you will wear yourself out and you'll never accomplish your goal. Okay? People pleasing is like chasing the wind. People pleasing is like trying to grasp oil in the hand. People pleasing will grind your fingers to the bone because you're never going to be able to accomplish it. You're never going to be able to make them utterly and entirely happy. So Paul says, verse 6, we didn't even try. We're not even about to try to seek glory from other people because that's impossible to even obtain. You're going to waste yourself. You're going to waste your strength and your best days and your best years trying to keep other people happy when all the while there was one who is in heaven that we ought to please. And so let's, let's define glory seeking this way. Okay, glory seeking, we're going to define as finding one's ultimate significance in the praise and the admiration and the respect of others. Now, it's okay to have people like you, right? You don't, you don't need to go around hurting people's feelings all the time so they say, I'm not seeking glory, so I'm going to crush your feelings. That's, that's not the point. We all like it when people like us. Who doesn't? Anybody wake up on a Monday and say, you know what, too many people like me. I think I'm going to really go out and try to make people loathe me today. Maybe the Grinch. He does that. But even the Grinch at the end, like he really wants the who's to love him, right? It's not the problem when we, when we enjoy it, when, when we have like people like us. I like people too. I like to be liked as well. So do you. The problem is when it becomes an all-consuming desire that people must like me. That's the problem. When I go from liking to be liked to needing to be liked, that's glory-seeking. And if you try to seek glory from other human beings, that is going to cause all kinds of problems in your life. Let me give you three sub-points here. First, if you seek glory from others, I guarantee you, you're going to have to make moral compromise. And that's not good. You're going to have to change who you are. You're going to have to change what you do. You're going to have to make tweaks and alterations to your ethical system, to your moral system, to, to, the, to the way that you, you know you ought to be. You're going to have to change who you are to keep people happy. I think of, of Hollywood. Now, it's too easy to pick on Hollywood, but here goes. You know, Hollywood rewards and awards themselves publicly more than any other institution or industry. They invent award systems to show their glory. That's why there are the Oscars and there's the Emmys and there's the, the what else, the, the Globes and the MTV Music Award. They make up these things and there's a whole season of awards and it's the same people over, over and over awarding themselves and they'll stand on a, a platform much like I'm standing before you and they'll hold up that trophy and it's probably the best moment of their whole life and yet you wonder how many moral compromises did it take to get the world's admiration. The world. The world. Lot. You wonder, how many people did you have to step over? How many people did you have to crush? 
How many moral compromises did you need to make to hold that trophy up and have this moment of glory? So the first problem with glory seeking is you will definitely have to shame yourself. And moral compromise. Second sub-point here. The problem with seeking glory from other people? It's like so obvious, right? It sets the bar way too low. Because there is a glory. There is a kind of glory. Now bear with me here. There is a kind of glory that we ought to seek. I'm going to clarify this here in just a few moments, but but there is a better glory, and the glory from other human beings is far too low. There's a higher glory that we ought to set as our bar and our goal and our aim. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 for just a moment here. Real quick, 1 Peter chapter 5. There's a different glory that we ought to be aiming at. And Paul, I'm sorry, Peter discusses this here in his first epistle, chapter 5. Speaking especially to leaders of the church, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker, here we go, in the glory that is going to be revealed. So there's an eternal glory, a different kind. And he says in verse 4 of the same chapter, 1 Peter 5, 4, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, which is to say, the approval of the Father. That's what we're searching for. And Peter uses this image of the, the fading glory crown because that was something very well known in Roman culture. And they would, re, they would award soldiers and gladiators and other military victors and even the athletes that competed in the games, when they won the prize, they would set upon their head this, this wreath, right? The laurel wreath. And it was a fading wreath. And as soon as, as soon as you got the wreath, it was already dying on your head, right? And so the irony is you had these very well-known people who were standing there brimming with their dying wreaths of, of glory crown on their head. And, and Peter says, Peter says, Yes, but how much better is it to be an unknown person with a crown of glory that does not fade? The approval, the approbation, the delight of our Heavenly Father. Okay. Third sub-point under number two is that when we seek glory, and this is the worst problem of all of it right here, if I'm honest, is that you're, what you're doing is you're reversing the creation order. If I'm seeking glory, I'm a creature. Somebody made me, okay? Everything I have is not made to gain glory for myself, but rather to give glory. That's what I'm here for. So my hands, my tongue, my mind, my eyes, my heart, I was made so that I would actually yield glory to another. The very purpose for which we were made is that we would glorify our Heavenly Father. We have the same created order purpose as the cherubim and the seraphim who fly around the glory of the throne in Isaiah chapter 6 remember this great scene where the seraphim literally means the burning ones in the Hebrew because they're like on fire with love for the glory of Christ and what do they do they shout out over and over again holy 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory so the purpose of our human lives our existence is not that we would seek glory but rather that we would give glory to the father and his son. Okay? So people are not a means to significance, and if you make them a means to finding your significance, you will only find woe and disappointment. Now, 
quickly, let's go back to our main text. And I just want to point this out. I think it would only be fair to the text here if I mentioned this. Because Paul says in verse 6, now, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Okay, so Paul says, essentially here I'm paraphrasing, this is a particular danger to leaders in the church, especially apostles. Why? Because they have a spiritual authority. Now, I'm not an apostle. Don't, don't pretend to be just an ordinary pastor, teaching elder in the Presbyterian church. So certainly don't have the same authority that the apostles did in the early church. They had the authority of, of doctrine and, and uh, inspired writing and things like that. But I will tell you this, and I think it's only fair to the text, that leaders in the church, be they apostles or pastors or elders or deacons, are particularly prone to the danger of seeking glory from people. Probably because leading a church is so hard. Sometimes it grows, and then you seek glory from people because it's growing. Or sometimes it shrinks, and so you're frustrated, and you change your aim, and instead of seeking to glorify God, you seek glory from people. So there's a particular danger here. I know that's only relevant to a couple of us in the room, but I'm just saying, I've got to preach this sermon to myself. Everhard, don't seek glory from people. Give glory to God. All right, third main point. People are not opponents to be overcome. Now let's draw this from verse 7. Paul says here, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. Paul takes now this most endearing analogy of a nursing mother who cares for her children. And Paul says, that's what we ought to be among you. Now this is going to come full circle because in verse 11, we're not here uh, this week, we're going to come back to this on a later date. But notice in verse 11, he's also going to make an illustration about fathers. He's going to draw a different point there. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each other in you and encouraged you. So we're going to get to that later. But here in our verse, we have this imagery of a nursing mother in verse 7. And this is important because my, my fear is that far too often, especially in a culture like ours that's so divided, that we begin to see people as opponents and enemies that we need to crush and to conquer. I don't know if you came to the theology conference that we hosted here a couple of weeks ago. It's been several weeks now, but if you haven't, the video is still online. Uh, Dr. Barry York is the president of RPTS, and he preached on the gentleness of Christ. And I was sitting right there in the front row, and, and that sermon really did me over because, because I've been feeling combative lately. And Barry preached on the gentleness of Christ, and he pointed us to Matthew 11. And I do want to end here, so let's go to Matthew chapter 11. I just want to show you what Barry pointed out. I'm not going to redo his whole sermon because you can watch it if you want to. But Barry made this incredible point that I've never noticed the juxtaposition in Matthew 11 between the boldness of Christ and confronting uh, the, the unbelieving scoffers of his day and then, and then so meekly and gently and winsomely calling them to himself. So look at, look at verses, uh, I'm in Matthew 11, 20, 21, 22 to 24. 
Jesus is boldly and uncompromisingly preaching the gospel. And here we have a fire and brimstone sermon from the Lord, right? He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And so some of us, we hear preaching like that and we're like, yes, get him, Jesus. And we feel like that today. I, I do. I preach it. But then, as Barry pointed out so eloquently in his sermon in verses 25, 26, 27, all the way to 30, Jesus must have audibly even changed the tone of his voice so that the fierceness that's intrinsic to the previous paragraph now gives way to this gentleness and this meekness of Christ bidding sinners to come to him and find rest for their weary souls. And so the point that I want to point out this morning is that it's not an either or between boldness and gentleness. You don't have to choose between those two. Because those two things can coexist in the person of Christ. And even as a couple of weeks ago, I preached that the righteous are as bold as a lion. Remember that sermon? Some of us were like, yeah, we need boldness. And we do. We definitely need boldness. No question about that. But that boldness is not mutually exclusive to the same kind of gentleness that Christ himself evidences here in Matthew 11 and Paul clearly evidences to the Thessalonians in chapter 2. So are we on the opposite side of the unbelievers in their culture war? Of course we are in many ways. Pulling on different sides of the tug of war rope. Right? Supreme Court's talking about abortion. We've, we've got a dog in this fight. We have a position on this. We ought to be fierce in what we believe. Bold as a lion. Uh, we believe opposite things about abortion and sexuality and gender and entertainment and justice. We believe opposite things in the world. They are our ideological opponents in the world of ideas. But, but please don't let people become so low in your eyes that you always think of them as your enemies rather than sinners that need to be one to Christ. Rather than blind men that need to be able to see with the light. Rather than, than dead men whose bones need to be raised through the gospel. Paul has given us here a very important primer of what Christian relationships look like here in this text and we do well to remember that people are not objects to be manipulated they're not means to our personal significance and they're certainly not our opponents to be conquered and vanquished let's pray together and then we're going to go in just a few moments now to the lord's table heavenly father we thank you for this good word from scripture we thank you for both the boldness of christ the righteous are as bold as a lion and yet the gentleness and the meekness of Christ and his apostles like nursing mothers caring for their children who, de who most certainly desire the best for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, 
And you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.